will focus especially on the conversation between uh, Christ and Peter, which begins in verse 15, after they had eaten breakfast, where Jesus says to Simon, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Now I suppose in a way that I've found it hard to resist the temptation, a good temptation, uh, to follow Peter from one failed fishing expedition to another. And uh, that's really what we're doing tonight because, of course, there is a very deep and spiritual connection between both these failed fishing expeditions. Now, in the three years since the Lord first called Peter, and of course Andrew and James and John, Peter had seen and heard much. But there's no denying that in that three-year period, which must have seemed in many ways like a, a lifetime and an extraordinary change for all these fishermen, but in those three years, although they learned much, there's no doubt that there was a what you could call maybe a kind of besetting or recurring sin in Peter's life. It ties in, I suppose, to some extent with just the kind of person he was, and sometimes the kind of people we are may lead to certain weaknesses of one kind or another. And there's no doubt that Peter, as the three years goes on, has an increasing difficulty with self-confidence, uh, relying on himself, his own resources, his own intelligence, his own strength, his own courage, his own everything, rather than relying on what the Lord supplies and what the Lord makes him. And of course, the danger of that, well, there are many dangers, but of course it means that you go into warfare against powers and principalities, not armed with the Lord's armour, but just with your own, and it's never good enough. One thing the devil is, is stronger than you, and stronger than me. But sad to say, Peter was self-confident and increasingly so. And uh, as the spiritual situation darkened in our Lord's ministry, and as the powers of darkness were let loose, uh, Peter didn't seem to appreciate the danger that he or the rest of the disciples were in. But one thing he was very sure of was this, that whatever would happen, however difficult it was, however trying it was, even if the rest of the disciples were to fall away, he would not. And he expressly said so, more than once. And even when the Lord checked him, he didn't accept that check and just overrode it and confirmed to the Lord, as if the Lord needed confirming, that what he originally said was true. Yes, he says, even if everyone forsakes you, I will not forsake you. Now, you'll find that uh, the Lord has to answer him a couple of times, assuring him. And in fact, he very explicitly tells him that before uh, the cock crows uh, three times, he would, deny, he would deny him three times. But still Peter responded to that again and said, though all others would, he would not. So he didn't take that warning seriously. And of course, you know the result of all that very well. When the hour of temptation came, 
Christ told them it was coming. And you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he told them to watch and pray in case they would fall in the temptation. They didn't watch. They slept, of course. The temptation came. The trial came. The enemy came. Judas and the officers and the chief priests and they arrested Christ. Now, Peter, you'll remember, immediately took out his sword and he began to wield it. You'll remember that he cut off the servant of the high priest's ear, but Christ told him to put the sword away. Uh, Let this be, he said. Allow even this. Christ wasn't to be defended by the sword, which meant, of course, for Peter that it was a case either of, well, fighting or being taken captive, and he didn't want to be taken captive, and with the rest of the disciples, they all forsook him and fled. They ran through the garden and disappeared into the night. So much for Peter's determination to stick with the Lord Jesus Christ. But of course you'll remember that he recovered his composure. And he followed the Lord that night and the band that had taken him captive, the band that had arrested him, he followed them, were told at a distance. Now that's just not uh, physically true, it's also spiritually true. Sad to say, his following at a distance is a kind of parable of what was happening to him in his spiritual life. He wasn't following the Lord as closely as he had been when he was called, and that of course will have its own consequences. John uh, allowed him to come into the courtyard of the high priest. It's a strange thing that John uh, knew the high priest and his family. That's an interesting question. But Peter was let in, and of course he sat by the fire. And you'll remember that he was recognised on three distinct occasions. He was identified as a follower of Christ. You'll remember that on these three distinct occasions, Peter denied that he was a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even though he heard the cockerel crowing, which must in itself have been a warning, he still went ahead and denied the third time. We're told, sadly, in the Gospels that on the third occasion, he denied with oaths and with curses that he knew this man. Oh, how he must have uh, felt about that afterwards. How we we even feel about reading it still. Uh, Imagine it. With oaths and with curses, he denied that he knew the one who was purchasing his own salvation. Now, I don't need to tell you uh, what I'm sure you know well, that, uh, of course, the Lord heard that from the judgment seat, and famously he turned round and looked at Peter. Peter, we're told, ran out into the night, and he wept bitterly. And he did weep bitterly because he was distraught, distraught at what he had done, shocked by his own weakness in the hour of adversity. Far from being strong, he was incredibly weak. And in fact, that night when he went out to weep bitterly, you would say there was just a hair's breadth between himself and Judas Iscariot. Someone else that night, another disciple who went out into the night and who felt a bitter pang of regret. A hair's breadth between them, but that hair was very strong. It was the intercession of the Lord Jesus Christ in which Judas had no place. But Peter had a place in it. Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith 
would not fail. It looked for all the world like it was failing, but fail it did not because Christ kept that faith alive. But Peter, from that point, was distraught. But the Christ who had prophesied this fall is the Christ who also prophesied his restoration. When the Lord said to him, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired you to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. He then immediately said, and when you are converted, and the word there means restored, when you are returned, restored, strengthen your brethren. Not only will you come back, not only will I take you back and bring you back, not only will you return, but you will return in such a way as to be a means of strength and help for your brethren. Now, of course, we can fall ourselves, but we can't restore ourselves. And even though we are called to come back, called to repent, uh, yet we know, we know that the grace to do that absolutely comes from God. And for some time, we even may be left to ourselves to see the impossibility of ourselves restoring ourselves until God gives us the heart and the will and the mind so to do. So like I say, we can fall ourselves, but we can't restore ourselves. But you'll notice that the Lord restores Peter in two distinct stages. He first of all begins the restoration on Resurrection Day. Now we know next to nothing about that except the single but important detail that on the resurrection day the Lord met with Peter on his own. How we would love to know what exactly was said between them on that day, but we just don't know. But we do know that he met him personally and privately. And the fact that the meeting is recorded, I think, is probably enough of an indication to say this, that the Lord gave him some assurance, some kind of assuaging of his grief, and brought some measure of peace to his heart. And I would guess that the peace that he brought to him was the peace of forgiveness, that your sin, Peter, grievous as it was, is forgiving you, and it's given you for my name's sake. Because it was for that sin and all your others that I died just three days ago. And I know your grief and the pain of your heart, but your sin is forgiven you for my name's sake. But as I said last Sabbath evening, there's far more to spiritual restoration than just forgiveness. There's far more to it than that. There's the whole matter of being restored Restored to usefulness and restored to service. Being given a, a healthy spiritual kind of confidence. Now, not a self-confidence, that was the problem in the first place. But a healthy spiritual confidence and a, a full recognition that not only does the Lord accept you, but the Lord can use you, use your life and your words and your service for his own praise and for his own glory. 
Now, I mentioned last week that it is common to feel that when we have failed or when we have fallen that there is no way back. And I think I said last week that it's sometimes like feeling that you always have to take a back seat in the house of God. Now, there are times when we have to take a kind of back seat. I don't mean a literal back seat, but a kind of back seat. For example, when we are under discipline, let's say we have done something publicly wrong, it comes to the attention of the church, and we have to lose our privileges for some time. That may well be. We are not called to pray, or at least we are men, or we are not to come to the Lord's table, or we are under a discipline of some kind or another. It's only right or fitting that that should be so. But even when that's over, there's a sense that, well, we might just be tolerated, and it's enough just to be tolerated, and we can certainly be of no use. And this meeting by the lake is to help Peter to come back to be what he was. Not only to come back to be what he was, but to be more than he was, because the Lord can do that. Sometimes we're told that where a bone breaks and it fixes, it can be strongest where it is broken. And there's no doubt that the Lord can use a thing in our life, even a negative thing, in order to somehow make us stronger and more useful for himself. And John here wants to tell us, before he finally lays down his pen, what the Lord did for Peter, his close friend and his spiritual companion. Now it, it's like John uh, makes a special effort to record it. You'll notice at the end of chapter 20 that it sounds as though the gospel is being finished. It sounds like the last verses of the gospel. If you read verse 30, Truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, does that read like the end of the gospel to you? It certainly reads like the end of the gospel to me. But the Holy Spirit brings something to his mind, something that he wants to record. And like I said, it's to do with his oldest friend and with his best friend. Uh, he grew up with Peter and... Um, attended the festivals together with Peter. Uh, John followed John the Baptist along with Peter. They fished together. They were partners on the same boats. They were converted together. They were called to preach the gospel together. And it's as though John doesn't want to leave Peter as the gospels would have left him without telling us that the Lord dealt with Peter and took him back to be what he was and in fact more than that. Therefore, well, I suppose you could say this too, that not only is that the case, but I'm, I'm fairly sure when this gospel is written that Peter is possibly dead. As the Lord prophesied there, Peter was led by someone else where he didn't want to go. Uh, he was crucified, as history tells us, crucified upside down in, in Rome or somewhere near Rome. And uh, he did die for his faith. I've always found it an interesting thing that when he thought he could die for Christ, he couldn't. When he probably thought he couldn't die for Christ, he could. That's the difference between being strong in yourself and being strong in the Lord. When you become aware of personal weakness, 
you start to ask God for his strength and that of course is what makes all the difference so John doesn't want to leave us without telling us of Peter's restoration so here he takes us forward three years from his original call and he takes us to the lakeside now you might remember that I, I said to you last Sabbath evening that Christ commanded the disciples to meet him at a mountain in Galilee. But here, before they go to the mountain, strangely enough, Peter says again, I go fishing. Uh, now, the last time we heard him saying that, he shouldn't have said it. He had left his nets and he had left the boats, but he hadn't quite left the nets and he hadn't quite left the boats. And here, it's something of the same. And of course, he took others with him. For long enough, uh, I didn't see any significance in Peter going fishing. Uh, my approach to that was, well, what, would, what else would you expect fishermen to do on a, on a lovely uh, sunny day when they were beside the Sea of Galilee? He had often done that, of course, since he was a boy. But in the context... And in, in the light of an empty catch and a full catch at Christ's command, we have to see it differently. We've got to see the fishing expedition as the same kind of fishing expedition that we saw last week, something that happened when it ought not to have happened. A kind of hankering back on Peter's part to when life was easier and a little more carefree. That, I think, was involved last time we looked at it, when he went back to the fishing. It's something he knew, and something he knew well. Now, um, I know fishermen very well. I know them better than I know ministers. And I know that though they always complain about it, they can't stop it. Um, they're fishermen in many ways for life. It's almost impossible to separate them from it. And there's no doubt that Peter had an element of discomfort in meeting with the Lord at Galilee. There's a reason for that, which we'll see in a moment. It's far more comfortable to go fishing. Um, when trouble comes our way, you know, it's always far easier to look back. We saw that in connection with Israel, you know. Whenever difficulty came, they say, well, we, it was never like this in Egypt. And they started hankering after Egypt. The same is true, actually, in connection with the ministry. Or pretty much everyone who becomes a minister, when they run into difficulties to do with the ministry, say, well, it was never like this in, in my previous life or in my previous calling. And, of course, you tend to look at these things with rose-tinted glasses. And, of course, the devil hands you these glasses and says, here, look at them this way. So what better for Peter again to do than to go fishing if he can't fish men? Why not fish fish? Surprisingly, or not surprisingly, he catches nothing. He catches nothing. Just as was the case three years before, when the Lord said, follow me. He first of all gave him an empty catch, and then he gave him a full catch. He gave him an empty catch because he was fishing when he shouldn't have been. And here again, he gives him an empty catch because he's fishing when he shouldn't have been. But lo and behold, at his word, here, he gives him a full catch. Just like three years previously, he gives him a full catch too. But after a 
a fruitless or a fishless night. In the morning, they see a stranger on the shore. And the stranger says, children, he says, have you caught anything? Have you any food? Of course, they say no. And of course, the stranger says to them, well, he says, cast your net on the right side of the boat. And of course, they cast the net on the right side of the boat. And lo and behold, they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Uh, in fact, they took in 153 large fish, which obviously made an impression. 153 is an interesting mathematical number for those of you who do maths. There may be an allusion to something that Archimedes, the mathematician, had written about this number, 153, but the fact of the matter is that there were 153. The Lord knows the number. Uh, they are all large fish. I think it's just a picture of the fact that when somebody goes to do God's work, God supplies, God rewards that work, and he rewards it abundantly. But for the moment, there they are drawing in 153 large fish. Now, John immediately says, that's the Lord on the shore. That's the Lord. Now, Peter, of course, being Peter, first to respond. He had taken off his outer garment because he was fishing, and probably just to enjoy the cool, but he wraps the garment on himself, and it's the hurry of the man. Out he goes into the water, although he's 300 feet from shore, because he's determined straight away to go to the Lord. Now, it's an interesting thing that there's this kind of feeling in Peter. At one level, he feels awkward. At another level, he's, he's got to go to him. Doesn't that describe even the way that we often are ourselves as sinners? And when we're conscious of our sin, sin that we have committed, on the, on the one hand, we can hardly dare to come into his presence on the other hand, you try and keep us back. But that's the way Peter is. So out he goes and he leaves the net rest of the disciples to drag the net to shore. The mystery deepens when they arrive at the shore because lo and behold, the stranger on the shore who had asked for food has already lit a fire, a coal fire, and he has himself provided fish and bread. And he served them breakfast himself. The Bible tells us that not a word was said during the breakfast. Not a word. We're told that no one dared to ask him, Who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. And they just didn't think that was a question they should ask. In fact, they didn't think they should initiate the conversation at all. We can understand that. The person who feels most awkward during the silence is Peter. The reason Peter feels awkward is, is because the Lord has created an awkward situation for him. As only the Lord can. When he wants to create an awkward providence, he creates an awkward providence. And uh, the fact of the matter is that the Lord has recreated in Peter's life two scenes that were very important in his life, two scenes that he can't actually reconcile with each other. One had to do with his call and the other had to do with his fall 
The first, of course, had to do with his call. The night he went out as a fisherman, caught nothing, but the Lord converted him into a fisher of men. That was his call to service and his call to the ministry, which had happened three years before. <clears throat> and as I mentioned to you last week, whenever the Lord is uh, calling us to a new work, he gives a feeling of emptiness and failure in our old one. So he empties his old net and he fills the new one. So the Lord recreates this situation, an empty net and a full one. He's revisiting his call. The second situation that the Lord recreates is his fall. And he recreates this situation by getting Peter to sit around the fire. Now we're told that, interestingly enough, it was a fire of coals beside the sea. The Greek word is anthracai, from which you get anthracite. Uh, which only appears one more time in the whole of the New Testament, this coal fire. And I'm sure already in your heads, maybe some of you have guessed when that occasion was. Yes, it was just a few weeks previously when Peter had sat in the courtyard of the high priest, warming himself around a coal fire, still struggling with himself, and wondering how he could stand up for Christ in the midst of a hostile crowd. Now, actually, while I'm saying that, and this has just really shot into my mind just now, uh, I've often heard people say that Peter was so weak that, uh, that he yielded before a, a, a little servant girl who identified him. That's, that's miles from being the case. That's not at all. But Peter wasn't afraid of the little servant girl. He was afraid of a seething mob that would have skinned him alive if they could have had a chance. You sometimes... You sometimes see these people still in the Middle, Middle East. Um, you see how fervid, um, how full of fervor they are sometimes when religious questions are involved. You can see them, perhaps they've got a, an American flag or something like that. You see them tearing it, you see them burning it, you see them trampling underfoot. And if you happened to be there uh, with the wrong nationality or the wrong faith, well, good luck to you. That is more, that is more the situation Peter was in. There's no doubt that his life was in danger. It was in danger of being lynched, perhaps crucified with the one that they were going to crucify. So it's not a, it's easy enough to look at Peter and say, oh, well, isn't it amazing how he denied him? No, it's not. It's quite understandable. It takes the grace of God to stand for God. It takes the grace of God to do the work of God. But Peter's problem was that all he had really was his own strength and he thought that was sufficient and of course it never really is sufficient but this fire calls to mind that fire the last time he sat around a coal fire you could say it took place on a, on a never to be forgotten night that Peter wishes he could forget altogether but he can't because the bottom line is that he sinned grievously now, it's an interesting thing that Christ makes us look long and hard at our sins and our failings before he puts them right. That's his way. It's part of putting them right that he makes us look at them long and hard. Now, God forgets our sins as far as his justice is concerned. I mean, they're on the back of Christ. They're dealt with. Peter was already forgiven. 
But when it comes to dealing with the sins and the problem that they've caused in your life, well, he brings them to your remembrance and he wants you to stare at them full in the face. So he forgets them for our justification, but he brings them to remembrance for our sanctification. And don't be afraid to look at your faults and your failings, even if it's hurtful to do. So God wants you to take a look and to see what you've done wrong. So Peter is in this strange situation where he's in the company having breakfast with the person that he loves most. And at the same time he feels far from comfortable. Because he's sitting around that fire and again he's gone fishing. And he knows the spotlight's on him. And the silence must have been awkward. You know yourself, it's kind of awkward anyway when you're, when you're in a company of people. Here, here you've got... Um, 11 people plus the Lord and uh, they're eating breakfast and no one's speaking a word. That's an awkward situation. But the silence at last is broken and it's broken by the Lord's voice <laughs> but it's the dreaded word Simon. <laughs> Peter would have rather that he had said anybody's name. Anybody's name. I'm sure when he heard Simon that he thought, oh, oh dear, here we are. It's not even Peter that he called him, and that was always a, a sign that things were going to be uncomfortable, especially when he said Simon, son of Jonah. Um, Peter is a reminder of strength and power and what the Lord makes you. Simon is what you wear and what you are by nature. And unfortunately, it's Simon, son of Jonah. Christ's going to remind him, not of who he is by grace, but what he actually is by nature. And again, sometimes God just has to remind us of that. Sometimes he has to remind us what we are by grace. Sometimes he has to remind us what we are by nature. Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? More than these what? Grammatically and logically, there are three possible interpretations of that question. But contextually, there's only one. After all, Peter had compared himself so favorably with the other disciples. All these may forsake you, he said. I won't. My loyalty, my commitment, and my devotion exceeds those of them. Now, in saying that, he wasn't actually doing down on anyone else. He had no interest in doing down on anyone else. What he was doing in his own way was, uh, in his own mind, was putting the Lord right on this. He says, I'm not, I'm not saying that, that, they, that they will fall. You're saying that they will fall. Fair enough. I won't. I will not forsake you, and I will never flee, and I will never deny you. So what does Peter answer? You ask me, do I love you? Yes, he says. You know that I love you. Now that answer is significant, both 
in what it sees and what it doesn't see. Notice, first of all, what it doesn't see. Peter drops the comparison issue. He doesn't say, yes, I love you more than these. He just simply says, yes, you know that I love you. Now that's progress. It's always progress when we stop comparing ourselves with each other. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed that nothing really hinders you in the Christian life like comparing yourself with others. Paul said we don't measure ourselves by others. I hope you've stopped doing it and myself too. Sometimes doing it discourages me. Sometimes doing it gives me a false sense of encouragement. Uh, Really, really uh, focus on yourself. Your own standing, your own walk. Uh, Focus on your own sin. It's right enough to want to take a speck out of someone else's eye, but even when you do that, Christ says that you usually have to take a plank out of your own. Now, interestingly, he does say that once you've taken the plank out of your own, you can then start to take a speck out of someone else's. That is so true. It is right of us to clean each other's feet and to encourage each other to holiness and perhaps to identify a sin, but always only when you've dealt with a plank in your own. By putting it that way, the Lord is saying not only that you have your own sin, but probably there's a worse sin in yourself that you're overlooking. And a lifetime of comparing yourself to others will get you nowhere spiritually. And it was for Peter's good that he stopped saying, well, I can do what they can't do. It's to our good if we stop saying in whatever way that I am better than them. That was good. So what he doesn't say is good. Notice what he does say too. Well, I'm asking you to notice it, but you you can't actually notice it in the English. Although I've noticed the New King James Version in the Bibles that have margins, whether it's center column margins or or, uh, footnotes at the bottom of the page, it does draw attention to the fact that the Greek word varies here. It does vary. When Christ says, Simon, do you love me more than these? Simon says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. That word that Peter uses for love is a different Greek word. And I wish it had been conveyed like that a little better in the, Greek, in the English, although maybe it's a little awkward to find an equivalent word. We can perhaps put it like this, and I think this is how the New King James does put it in the mar- margin. Do you love me, Peter? Peter says, yes, Lord, I have a very strong affection for you. And that word is less than the word that Jesus used. It's less strong, less hearty. Now, when Paul uses that different word, he obviously does it deliberately. The easiest thing in the world would have been to use the same word that the Lord used to him. He self-consciously chooses another. Does he mean to deny that he loves the Lord in the way that Christ does to? No. It's just that he's being a bit more cautious about himself than he was before. And that's not a bad thing. Of course it's right to be able to say that you love the Lord, as the Lord would want us to say it with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. But right on the back of your own sin and shame 
it's quite difficult sometimes to come out with these things quite like that. Peter has learned something about himself. And so he's more cautious. The Lord acknowledges that. Feed my lambs, he says. This is the start of a restoration process. He will say, feed my lambs. Then he will say, shepherd my sheep. And then he will say, feed my sheep. He's coming all the way back to where he was, but he, he starts here. You are able to help other younger Christians. Exam over. Peter can relax. No. Another period of silence. Well, who wants to speak after that? Nobody. Simon, he hears a second time. Do you love me? Now, this second question is more searching and it's more hurtful. Why? Because this time Christ has dropped the comparison issue. He doesn't say, do you love me more than these? He simply says, okay, but do you love me? As though I'm questioning that. Do you love me? Peter's answer is, yes, he says. You know that I love you. And for the second time, Peter substitutes his own word. Yes, he says, you know that I have a strong affection for you. You know it, he says. Maybe I can't explain it. Maybe what I did four weeks ago would make anyone think the opposite. And of course it did. What an appalling witness it was. Uh, supposing you heard one of ourselves standing up with oaths and curses in a very difficult situation and say that they didn't know the Lord. What a witness that would be. Supposing it was somebody as prominent, as prominent as Simon Peter was in the cause of Christ. I mean, you would think the worst. Maybe you'd think he was worse than Judas Iscariot, actually. But all Peter can say is, you know that I have a strong affection for you. And so the Lord says, shepherd my sheep, rule them, take an oversight over them. Exam over. Simon. And it's still Simon. It's still Simon. Do you love me? Third time. John tells us that Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? Why was he grieved? Well, the usual explanation is because he was asked three times. And of course he had denied it three times. So it's as though Christ is reminding him of the denial. But friends, the picture I presented to you makes quite clear that Peter didn't need to be reminded at this point that that it's about his denial. I mean, that was obvious to Peter from the moment he sat round the fire. No, we're told that he was grieved the third time, not because it was the third time, because on the third occasion Jesus said to him, Peter, do you love me? And this time the Lord came down to Peter's level. On the third occasion, what the Greek tells us is that Christ himself turned and said, Peter, do you actually have a strong affection for me? Oh, no wonder he was grieved. 
It's as though the Lord is questioning whether there's a basic, a basic loyalty, a, a basic kind of love or a basic kind of affection in there for himself at all. He's grieved. He's grieved. He's grieved that his love for the Lord could be doubted. Like I said, at one level, why shouldn't it? He hadn't hadn't behaved as someone who loved the Lord. But in real life, that's not the way it is. The more you love somebody, the more grieved you are if they doubt your love for them. Suppose you, which I hope is the case, you, for example, as a husband, love your wife greatly. And uh, loving your wife means an awful lot to you. And your wife knowing that you love her means an awful lot to you, which is the way it should be in any husband's life. But suppose your wife genuinely said to you, do do you really love me? Well, the greater your love for her, the more grieved you'll be by that question. I mean, if you didn't really love your wife, you wouldn't care about that question. But Peter cared about that question. It, It cut him to the quick to think that the Lord thought that he didn't actually love him. Yes, that's how you could interpret what I said and did. But surely you know that that is not the case. And so what what does Peter say? Well, (coughs) Peter just appeals to the Lord's omniscience. Uh, He says, Lord, you know everything. And you know that I love you. It's a searching question, all right. I'm sure Peter could say, well, I'm glad today that you're not asking me if I've repented enough, because I, I don't know if I have repented enough. Am I sorry enough? How do I know if I'm sorry enough? Have there been enough tears? I don't know. Do you love me? Yes. How? Well, because you're asking me something to do with first principles. You're asking me something to do with the very bottom of my heart. You're you're asking me something that I can reach and that I, I can access. And I know when you get through that failing and that denial and these oaths and the curses, I know that you know that that's not, well, at one level it's me, all right, because I was conceived in iniquity and sin like David before me. But on another level, that's not who I am. One way, yes. In another way, no. That doesn't really represent who you have made me and what I am as a new creature in yourself. And you can go down underneath everything. And what you will find is that I do love you with my faults and my failings and my sins, my incompetence, my inabilities, my bad decisions and what I did, I love you. And I know that you know that about me. It's Peter's way of saying that in spite of the fact that he wilted beside the fire, he loves the Lord more than anyone else. He knows who the Lord is. He knows that the Lord is saving him from a great death. He may not know exactly how that's working itself out, but he knows that that's who he is, and he knows that that's what he's doing for him. He knows now, of course, that the Lord has died for him. 
He knows now that the Lord has risen from the dead for his sake. He knows all that. And he says, I know that you know that I love you. And with that, the Lord says very well, he says, you can now feed my sheep. Not only can you rule over them and teach the younger, but you can teach the elder too. I bring you back to the apostleship from which, in a sense, you fell by your own sin. And therefore, it's no wonder that the, the full catch that he found on the right side of the boat was to be to Peter a new picture of what the Lord makes him now. Full catch, 153 large fish. But the Lord gives him two words in closing. And I'll close with them too. The first one is, follow me. Verse 19, well, let's read verse 18. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself, walked where you wished. But he says, when you're old, you're going to stretch out your hands and another will gird you or tie you and carry you where you don't wish. This he spoke signifying by what death he would glorify God. And as I mentioned earlier, that turned out to be, in a good few years' time, being crucified upside down for his faith in Christ. But the Lord followed that by saying, follow me. And, of course, uh, the Lord says, follow me, irrespective of what other people do. You'll notice a strange thing in verse 20, that Peter turned round at that point and he saw John, the disciple that Jesus loved, who had leaned on his breast at the supper. In verse 21, Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, But Lord, what about this man? Now, I don't think that was a kind of just a kind of nosiness in connection with what was going to happen to John. I, I honestly think that was just deep love on Peter's part. He was prepared to accept that he was going to suffer for Christ himself, but he was actually concerned about John. Jesus said to him, If I will that he remains until I come or return, what is that to you? You follow me. That may seem a rather strange kind of way of replying but the Lord is essentially saying to him look um, I will assign John's portion to him and I'll take care of John never you mind about that but Peter don't take your eye off me and onto anyone else I have just told you to follow me you focus on doing that and of course follow me unto death, stretching out your hands, being tied by others who are carrying you where you would do not wish to go. The strong Simon, strong in himself, failed in the crisis. But the strong Peter, who was strong in the Lord, was crucified upside down for his faith. There's an interesting, I'll close with this, there's an interesting English word, petrified. 
I was petrified. Now, we use that word, of course, um, when you're frightened about something. Um, and that's because it makes you stand absolutely still. Because what the word petrified means is to be turned to stone. And Peter, of course, is stone. That's the meaning of the word. To be petrified is to be turned to stone. Um, to be made strong. This is the point at which Peter is genuinely petrified. This is the point at which Simon stops being Simon, as it were, for once and for all. I'm sure he took many infirmities with him. But the Peter you see writing his letters is a, a, a different kind of Peter from the Peter that we've seen earlier. He's grown. He's grown. And why has he grown? Because he's come to know himself. And he's come to know the Lord. And knowing yourself in your sin, your weakness and your folly. And knowing the Lord in, in his purity and in his strength and in his wisdom is what makes the difference. It converts us all from Simon's to Peter's. And may the Lord uh, so work in your own life that whatever may have gone wrong, you may yet come forward and stand with the Lord's people and do the Lord's works. Because when the Lord restores, he really restores. Let us pray. <coughs> Eternal God, uh, we can only wonder at the greatness of grace and the marvellous patience of the one who deals so tenderly with us. It must indeed in one way have been very cutting Simon to be exposed even like that in front of his brethren but the Lord well knows how to deal with us and uh, he well knows how to cut out what is harming and destroying us and how to tenderly bind our wounds help us to lay hold upon forgiveness help us to lay hold upon restoring grace and give us the faith and the confidence to believe that with our God assisting us, we can overleap a wall and do exploits for Christ. In the Saviour's precious name we pray. Amen. Our last psalm is 103. And at verse 8. 103 and verse 8 The Lord our God is merciful and he is gracious, long-suffering and slow to wrath in mercy plenteous. He will not chide continually nor keep his anger still. With us he dealt not as we sinned nor did requite our ill. You'll notice that none of that was a punishment for Peter. It was all just careful chastisement. Careful, tender chastisement. Because as the heaven in its height, the earth surmounteth far, so great to those that don't fear his tender mercies are. As far as east is distant from the west, so far hath he from us removed in his love all our iniquity. Such pity as a father hath 
unto his children dear, like pity shows the Lord to such as worship him in fear. 8 to 13, we stand to sing. <coughs>